Hebrews chapter 12. We've spent the last couple of weeks in verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Today we're going to move on to verses 2 and 3. We'll be in verses 2 and 3 this Sunday. Next Sunday is Thanksgiving Sunday, so to speak. I, I look at the Sunday before Thanksgiving as Thanksgiving Sunday, so we'll have a Thanksgiving-oriented um, message next Sunday. And then um, when we come back from Thanksgiving, we start Advent. We have four weeks of Advent. And for Advent this year, we're going to look at Romans 5. And uh, we're going to talk about hope and love and joy and peace from Romans 5. And before you know it, it's going to be January. Can you believe that? It's just crazy. I'm still stuck in October somewhere. I was thinking yesterday, I need to get my flu shot. It's October. You're supposed to get your flu shot like September or October. And so I need to get that done. And then all of a sudden it hit me. We are halfway through November. I'm a little bit behind. But uh, that's kind of where we're going to be going. So we'll be out of Hebrews until the first week of January. And I'm really hoping that Jesus comes back before the first week of January. Uh, it'll take a lot of stress off of my mind, plus a lot of other things. So, uh, But we'll see what happens with that. If not, we will continue to endure. But this morning, let's read verses uh, Hebrews 12 and verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned, the last two weeks we have been looking at verse 1. We focused in on verse 1 of chapter 12, and we see that the writer used a metaphor of a long-distance race to explain what it means to live by faith. There, there are so many important little phrases in here as we are in this first part of Hebrews 12. The, the idea of who for the joy that was set before him, and that is connecting us back to chapter 11. The so great a cloud of witnesses connects us back to chapter 11. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us connects us back to chapter 11, to all these people who have, by faith, lived the general direction of a life of obedience to God. And we're able to endure by faith. And he's used this race metaphor in relation to all of these people and in relation to us and in relation to Jesus to explain what it means to live by faith. A life of faith is a life that is one of obediently trusting in God because the individual 
believes in God's person, who he says he is, and in his promises. But this life, as we live that way, and we choose to walk by faith, we choose to believe in God's person and his promises, we find is not an easy life. As I've said before, there's no rainbows, unicorns, there's no warm, fuzzy feelings here in Hebrews 11 and 12. The writer is being open, he's pulled back the court curtain, and he's letting us know that this is a difficult path. The metaphor he uses informs us that this race is run over a course that at times is hard and painful. And for some people, the course is more painful than others. For some people, the course doesn't seem to have that much pain or they'll run that course for a long time without a lot of pain or suffering and suddenly there's a lot. For some people, it seems to them that that course from the very beginning was a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, it, It varies from person to person and people say, why? Why does it vary like that? It's God's purpose. I really can't say. Some people say, do I need more of a two-by-four over my head? Well, first of all, asking that question reveals you don't understand how God works. You've got a flaw there because God isn't whacking us with two-by-fours. We're not compared to mules. Um, Is it because I've got more sin in my life? Well, that question reveals that you don't understand your standing in Jesus with the Father. You've got a weak spot there in understanding how the Father views you. Um, is it just that I'm more stubborn? Yeah, probably. No, I don't know. <laughs> that was a joke. I don't know why some people's courses are more painful than others, except that that's God's good purpose. And, and he has united us with his son who is gentle and lowly. So we have to understand this pain and suffering within the context of our Father and His Son and how they interact with us. But having this course being hard and painful and the writer also being a human being who has had a hard and painful life based on some of the things that are said in here, there's a connection that comes together with this writer and I think he identifies with our natural response to difficulty. When difficult things touch our lives, when painful things happen in the course of our life, what is our first normal response to difficulty and pain? To get away from it, to go around it, to avoid it. It, it's, It's just the natural response. But the writer here tells to us that we must fight back against that natural response to difficulty, which reveals itself in our trying to escape suffering and encourages us instead to endure, to remain under the circumstances God has brought into our lives and to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, successfully finish our course. To be able to say with Paul, I have kept the faith. 
I have finished my course. Those are profound and weighty words in Scripture. I've thought many times about what do I want on my tombstone someday. Well, I'm probably not going to have a tombstone because I've told Terry not to spend the money on a big funeral and tombstone. Just cremate me and do what you want with the ashes. God's going to put it all back together someday anyway, and I'm not real worried about what part of the ground I'm in or on or wherever. Um, but I've, I've thought if it could be said of my life, I finished the course, I kept the faith. What better thing to have been said? And that's what the writer here wants us to be able to say when it's all said and done. In relation to that, the writer has taught us about some of the choices that have to be made by those who would participate in the race. There are things that we have to make choices about. Sometimes those choices are for a shortened period of time, for a temporary time. Sometimes those choices are for an extended period of time. Sometimes those choices for some people are for their entire life because of the path that God has for them. But those things that have to be laid aside because they're good or because they're evil, we have to forego those things because they would distract us from finishing in what God has for us in our life. He's told us to choose an ongoing pursuit of righteousness so that sin has no opportunity to enslave or entangle us. So if we really desire to finish the course, to have kept the faith, then again, anything, whether it's good or whether it's evil, anything that would distract us from or hinder us in the race has to be left behind. And with those thoughts in mind, then he brings us to verse 2 and verse 3, where he identifies the runner's focus. The runner's course, the runner's choices, the runner's focus. There's a phenomenon that I have experienced not recently, although my family would probably say they have experienced it recently with me or through me or interacting with me, but there's a phenomenon that I've experienced in my past when I was in athletics. And from talking with others and reading books about others, it's, it seems to be a fairly common experience in the world of competitive sport. And if you've ever been involved in competitive sports, you may have had this experience. And this experience happens when a person becomes very focused on what they're doing. And when that happens, when the level of focus, intensity of focus happens, this phenomenon is like everything around you seems to fade away. I would say, my family would say this, if I don't have my hearing aids in and I'm absorbed in something, I don't hear anything that's going on around me. But I felt it more personally in relation to sports. And it was most notable for me when I was playing basketball. Basketball was my love. I was better at football, but basketball was my love. And when I was playing basketball, before the game started, 
I would hear the people in the stands talking. Sometimes they'd be heckling us. They'd be, they'd be shouting things up out to us as we were doing our layups and things, trying to intimidate us. But people would be up in the stands talking. There was this general noise that went through the gymnasium. Um, and the cheerleaders were always doing their thing down there, whatever that was. If you want to know my idea, my, my view of cheerleaders, you'll find out I had a low view of cheerleaders. And you might not like me anymore after you find out my view. But the cheerleaders were doing their thing. There was just noise happening. But what I found was that when the game started, they had the tip off, the game started, and the ball began to bounce on the floor, and I would be either defensively or offensively, I would start to focus in, staring at my opponent's waist, looking back and forth at the ball and at the opponent, keeping both in view, as I used to tell players when I coached, never be in a place where you don't see both the ball and your person you're guarding. As I was seeing that and seeing the offensive thing lay out in front of me on defense or on offense, seeing where their defense was and looking for openings within the defense or ways to get away from someone or to get somebody else free. As, as I would focus in on that, all that noise would go away. So anybody else who used to play sports that that would happen to you? It was, it was, just, like, it was just like the gym was empty uh, and, and it was surreal because it would get so quiet. But in the midst of all of that, I could still hear the coach's voice from the sideline. And, and we were always taught to be constantly communicating with one another on defense. So I would hear my teammates, what they were saying. I would recognize their voices and I would hear what they were saying. I would hear what the coach was saying, but all that overriding noise would just disappear and be gone. And it was like, 10 guys on the floor with a couple refs and, and sneakers squeaking on the floor and a few people talking. It was just an odd thing. But when there was a timeout or a free throw, if there were moments when the game stopped completely for a period of time or when I was sitting on the bench because I had too many fouls. I never finished a game in high school. I played varsity for four years. I lettered four years in basketball. I never finished a game. Either got kicked out or fouled out of every game I played in. So I did get to spend a lot of time on the bench because I had too many fouls. It's just the way I played. Somebody told me I had first gear and fifth gear and nothing in between. And it, it was true. Now I only have first gear. I have, a, I have a granny gear, for those of you who are old enough to remember granny gears. That's how it works these days. But when, when, the, when I would not be out on the floor in the midst of the competition, all that noise would come back, and suddenly it was hard to hear the coach. You'd get in the huddle during timeout, and you'd have to listen real closely to hear what he was saying because the noise was drowning it out. And, and the players on the floor, it was hard to hear them anymore. So it was just a weird thing that when my focus was intense on what I was doing, all that noise went away and those voices I could hear clearly when my focus let up, I would hear all the other noise. And, and then the ones that I needed to hear would be muffled and hard to understand. It's a focus thing. Some of you read very intensely and you don't notice anything that's going on around you. 
Everything else gets dropped away. And I think that's what the author is trying to communicate to us in verses 2 and 3. This idea of undistracted, intense focus. He says, look to Jesus. And he says in verse 3, consider him. This word translated look literally means to look with intense, undivided attention. That's why this, this idea of, of sport and the focus that's involved in sport comes to my mind as he, as he uses this word. Jesus is to become the object of our attention as we run this race. And he adds an element to this, adds an element on top of this with this word look, that it it means to make a choice to look away from all the other things that are around us. Look away from all the other things that would distract our attention and look to Jesus. This single focus of life is about Jesus. I remember, uh, I don't remember this happening when I was playing sports, but when I was coaching sports, at the college, I was the uh, assistant men's basketball coach. We had a few guys on the team who knew that they probably were not going to get into the game. They got to suit up. They got to be part of the whole thing. But we had a rotation of about seven people that were our main players. And so there were about four people who usually suited up around 11 people for a game. There were usually about four people that rarely ever got into a game. And they would sit on the end of the bench and goof around. They would sit and talk to each other. Or they'd be talking to people in the stands or the cheerleaders would be down there at the end of the bench and they would be talking to the cheerleaders on the end of the bench. They were there for the game. They wanted to claim they were part of the team. They wanted to claim that they were, you know, there with everybody else and this was important to them, but it wasn't important to them. They had divided attention. They, they, they were interested in what happened with the game. And if, if we won or lost, then they wanted to celebrate or feel sorry with the loss, whichever happened. But they really weren't on the same level of vested interest in the game as the guys who were going out onto the court. They claimed to be part of the team, but in a sense, they really weren't part of the team. They didn't care about the same things. They weren't invested in the same things. And, and in a sense, with this race idea, that is what's coming across, that, that the writer is saying, I want you in this race to have an intense, undivided attention so that you may come to a point where you say, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is a crown laid up for me. He wants us to become so intently focused on Jesus in our race that other lesser things fade from our consciousness. I don't know about you, I have found over the course of my life 
that it's not too hard to get distracted. That the course gets hard and painful. And I want out from it. And I take my eyes off of Jesus and I start thinking about how hard and how painful the course is. Anybody else have that experience in life? That my focus becomes how tired I am and how hard this season of life has become. Now, it's, it's true that it's become hard at times. And it's true that it's painful at times. But I, I find myself, instead of thinking about Jesus and looking to Jesus, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I find myself thinking about the pain and the suffering and how much I want to be free from it and how tiring it is. There's a similar thing that happens, and I've never had this happen to me because I never ran this long at once, but they talk in circles of running about something called the wall. Generally speaking, it happens different phases for different people, but it's within a general time frame of running a marathon where you feel like you can't go any further. There's that early on thing when you start running, and I've had this a lot, oxygen debt is what they call it. There's a period where your muscles are needing more oxygen and your body hasn't caught up yet to providing that oxygen to your body, to your muscles, and you start to feel this pain and you start to feel like you can't get your breath and you feel like you've run maybe a quarter mile and you think you're gonna die. And you know that you just gotta push through that and you'll get your second wind and then everything evens out because the oxygen levels have caught up with your muscles and you're fine. But there's another point in a really long race that they talk about where you just feel like you can't go any further. And the runner at that point has to make a decision. Are they going to focus on how much they hurt and how tired they are and how far they've run or are they going to focus on the end goal? I I hate to point somebody out, but the only long distance runner I know is Andy. And do you, have you hit that Andy with the wall? And is that fair to say that it's, you gotta think about where you're going and not where you are at the moment. You've gotta look past that pain and suffering. And that's, that's what the writer is saying. You're in a painful situation. You're in a hard place right now. And it feels like you can't go any further. The only way you're going to go any further is look to Jesus. Intensely focus on him. And lesser things, painful things, will begin to fade from our conscience. So that's kind of what he's telling us. But if you're like me, you might think, well, that's kind of nice words. But is that realistically even possible? Is that realistically even possible? Is it possible in the hard, painful moments of life, especially when those hard, painful moments of life are long term? Is it possible to see past the pain and the suffering to look to Jesus for whatever that means and actually get past this point? And the answer is yes. Seeing we're surrounded by such a great cloud 
of witnesses. And on the other hand, then, some people will, will set aside the pain and suffering question and they'll say, okay, but what about life? Aren't we to enjoy life? Are, are, are we supposed to, these good things of life, are we supposed to so intently focus on Jesus that we don't enjoy the good things of life? Are we not allowed to enjoy rest and relaxation? Are we not allowed to enjoy relationships and family? How do all those things fit into this intense, undivided attention so that other things fade away? And I think that's what he goes on to explain to us here. And I want to spend time this morning talking about one aspect of Jesus that I'll give you in a minute. And then in January, I want to come back to here and talk about Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith and also why focusing on Jesus is important so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. There are some things that we have to keep in mind about Jesus that we'll talk about in January, but this morning I wanna talk about him in one specific area. And it's probably the most common way that you approach this passage in your mind. Jesus as a role model. Remember in, in Hebrews 11, I kept saying, these are not our heroes. These are not our role models. These are examples. But Abraham is not a hero. Abraham, remember what Abraham did. Moses is not a hero. Remember what Moses did. These, these people are not our heroes. They are people who can witness to the fact that it's possible to live a life of obedience by faith. But here when the author writes to us and says, look to Jesus, he hasn't said that about any other person. He's presented these people, but he hasn't said, look to Jesus. Now we have a hero. Now we have a role model. Now we have someone to emulate. When we were all younger, when I say we were all younger, I'm thinking of a select group of people here this morning who happen to be in my age demographic and there aren't very much of us, very many of us here. The rest of you are younger. But when we were younger, and some of you as a younger person, we have role models in our life. We have people that we look up to and we want to emulate. In my younger days, there was a guy named Lou Alcindor which most of you are too young to have known Lou Elsender. Uh, he went by another name later, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the greatest centers who ever played in the NBA. And he played for UCLA, which is my team, because he played for UCLA and they won 16 national championships through those years. And, and uh, that takes, tells you back how far back I go to the previous century. But, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had this shot that he kind of pioneered within basketball where he would be in the middle and he'd get the ball and he'd do this little jump hook, little baby jump hook. And it was, it was a new thing that came on the scene. And it was difficult for people to defend because his arms were like seven feet long and nobody could get up there to get to that jump hook. I can't tell you how many hours I spent in my driveway with my basketball hoop learning to perfect that little jump hook. And I got pretty good at it. 
I actually got to where I could do a little shot over the back of my head facing away from the basket and put it in. I, I developed that off of the jump hook. But there was the baby hook, there was the long hook, which is what uh, Kareem did. I would shovel my driveway in the dead of winter with a flat basketball and be out there. And if you know me and know me how much I hate winter, I would be out there in the cold with gloves on doing my little jump hook till I got that mastered. And then I moved away and learned how to bank hook, to, to do a hook and I could bank it from different angles. That was my shot. And then everybody else grew up and I was still 6'1 and I was trying to do jump hooks against 6'6", six, 6'7 six, six, guys and they were swatting my jump hook everywhere. And then I had to learn some new tricks. But he was my role model, not as a person, but as a basketball player. There's a lot of kids who learn to try and dunk the ball with this, with this spread out thing with their legs, uh, Michael Jordan. He was the guy for that generation. And, and they wanted to be like him in his basketball play. They're role models. And the writer here presents to us a role model, someone to emulate, someone who's presented, us, pre presented to us as an example to be like. And he does it in this way, this example, and the thing that we are to emulate is who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In our race, which at times is painful, and at times we suffer, the writer of Hebrews says, this is your role model. This is the one to emulate, and this is how I want you to emulate him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And in verse three, he adds that he was a person who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. When we think of Jesus sometimes, we think of him in terms of a wimpy guy who for some people he walked around doing this all the time. For other people, he just liked patting children on the head. He was soft. His hands were soft in the pictures. His face was soft in the pictures. He was, he was pretty feminine, which I guess is acceptable in this culture today. But there, wasn't much ma there isn't much masculine about Jesus in the pictures. He doesn't look like he's ever worked a hard day in his life. He just always has this nice smile. There's nothing in his eyes that ever indicate that he's ever had any pain. I have learned that I can, I can identify very quickly people who have had pain in their life by just looking in their eyes. And I have learned that people can pick up on pain in my life pretty fast just by looking at my eyes. It's just there. But when you look at Jesus, he's just serene and happy. There's nothing there that indicates he's had any hardship in his life at all. But we're told here that he had to endure and he specifically had to endure the cross. But this was a man who's called a man of sorrows. This is a man who did not have a home. This is a man 
who slept out in the elements. This is a man who was not wealthy. This is a man who had to work hard at an occupation for 30 of his 33 years of life, at an occupation that would have produced calluses on his hands and, and the sun would have affected his face and the heat. He probably wouldn't have had much body fat, unlike some of the pictures that show him with nice features have filled in. He probably would have had harsh features because he would have been thin. And he wouldn't have had perfectly styled hair. This is a man who knew hardship, who knew pain, who was rejected by his family. His brothers and sisters mocked him. He grew up day to day being called an illegitimate child. He would have been a misfit, an outcast. Even before the day that his official ministry began. And I think that the pictures of Jesus that we have in our minds harm us in understanding to some degree the type of life that Jesus lived and how he can identify with the type of life we live. His was a life of pain. His was a life of suffering. His was a life of hardship. But what we're told is that Jesus looked beyond the pain and Jesus looked beyond the hardship to what waited for him after he finished the race. You know, again, I'm going to talk about Andy again. Sorry, Andy, eventually we'll get off the race thing and stop talking about Andy. But I don't think Andy is a world-class runner, are you? She's not up in those tiers. She's not running for prizes. Matter of fact, the majority of the people who run marathons are not running for prizes. They're running to be able to say, I disciplined my body enough that I could do this. That is, in a sense, a joy that is set before those runners, those marathon runners, to be able to cross the line, to be in spite of the boom of the marathon races these days, to be in a rather select few of the general world population who actually can run 26.2 miles in one day and to improve their times. But they're not running for any other prize than to be able to say, I did this, I finished this, I accomplished this. But unlike most long distance runners today who run in those competitions, the writer of Hebrews tells us about Jesus that he ran his race, he finished his course, he kept the faith because of a prize that was held out there for him. And it wasn't just finishing. There was a joy that was set before him. There was something that he knew that when he crossed that finish line <coughs> of death, burial, and resurrection, that there was a prize. There was something for him that drove him 
through the pain and the suffering that lured him, that called him. He was willing to forgo ease and comfort. He was willing to forgo wealth. He was willing to forgo perceived success. He was willing to forgo a good reputation and other good things for a better thing. That joy that was set before him. Even though the path of God's will led through an intense experience of shame for him, and he despised that shame, he hated that shame that he had to go through. Going through the cross, one part of it was you hung naked for hours in front of thousands of people. That in and of itself is a shameful thing. He was called a blasphemer. The Son of God was called a blasphemer. That's a shameful thing. He endured the false accusations. He endured all of those things. Jesus remained under all of it because he was focused on something that was more important to him than his reputation or his comfort or his ease. That something far better here is classified as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But what that means is that Jesus looked beyond all of the stuff of this life in relation to pain and suffering. All of the stuff of this life that was even good. He looked beyond to the joy of of establishing his kingdom. To the joy of the ultimate defeat of his enemies, the defeat of sin, and the defeat of death for us. Jesus' joy was for his God to get glory, his Father to get glory, and for the good of others. As Jesus ran his course through pain and suffering, he looked beyond all of it to the exaltation of his God and what it would do for others. Seated at the right hand of God is metaphor for the establishment of his kingdom. And who are the members of his kingdom? We are. Seated at the right hand of God speaks of his sovereignty over all the things of this world and through his death he brought the defeat of sin. He brought the defeat of death. He brought the defeat of all of his enemies. And through what he did, he brings us into the family of God so that one day we could hear a voice from the throne where we hear, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will dwell with them. That's the joy set before Jesus. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. Because sin will no longer be present. That's the joy that was set before him. And we're called to emulate him. We're called to be people 
who while we feel the pain and sorrow and hardship of this life, we live as people whose spiritual eyes look beyond the things of this life to the better things that our Father offers to those who endured and faithfully finished the race. We are to be people who conduct ourselves, who live in a way, who run our race in a way that we want God to be known. And we want the good of others to flow from what we endure. That's Paul's perspective in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The very familiar statement, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And I don't know how many people really read beyond that. There was a music group one, at one point called Jars of Clay. Everybody knew that phrase. Everybody knows about jars of clay. With lots of explanations what that's talking about. And hardly anybody reads past jars of clay. So let me do that for you this morning. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When believers run the race, when believers are faithful, when believers finish the course, people stand back and, and have to acknowledge either within themselves or verbally that something is different about them. Paul talks about his situation to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So right there, We're showing that the surpassing power belongs to God. And in the midst of all of these things that Paul mentions, what he is wanting is that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Right there, you have God's glory and others' good. So people can see God in our lives and people can see, can be, we we can have a ministry of good to others in the midst of it. So he goes on to say, so death is at work in us, but because we have endured, that I just added that, but it's the flow of thought. Because we have endured, even though death is at work in us, life now is at work in you, the good of others. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so spoke, I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, the good of others, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Boy, he's being kind of repetitive here. We suffer for the glory of God and the good of others. And because of this, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. We're afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down, but we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed 
day by day. And then these are the words that just blow my mind every time I read this, honestly. For this light, momentary affliction. How could Paul say that? Later on in chapter 11 of this same letter, he's going to talk about the definition of momentary light affliction. And it's anything but light. And it's been going on his entire time since he's come to know Christ. How can he call this light momentary affliction? He says, because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a light thing. There's a weighty thing. And nothing can be compared to that weighty thing. In light of how weighty the glory is that we will share with Christ and in our Father's presence, all of this is light. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to wrap my head around because oftentimes this does not feel light. But whenever this feels heavy, Paul wants us to understand that there's something so much heavier in a positive way, the glory that's going to be ours, that it's going to make this feel like nothing. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are seen are eternal. You know, there's a lot of times where I say to Terry, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I don't mean pastoring specifically. Sometimes it relates to that. But sometimes the stuff of life just presses in to a point where I feel overwhelmed. And the burden is too heavy. And I'm tired. And it hurts physically and emotionally. And in those moments, I, I say, I can't do this anymore. And those are the times where Terry says, just another day, just today. Can you do today? I was saying to somebody this past week, and I'm sharing it with Terry, the next summer is going to be 20 years of being a pastor. It's the hardest, most burdensome thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm not saying that to get sympathy. It's just a reality. I want you to feel bad for me. It's just what it is. But it struck me all of a sudden because I heard her in my mind, can you just do one more day? And doing just one more day means that next summer will be 20 years of being a pastor. What I'm, what I'm trying to communicate is those one more days add up to being further down the path. One more day, one more step. We get ourselves in trouble when we start to think, but, but there's all this, and what if, and this is not going the way it should have, and this, is, and, and this could happen. And again, maybe I am the only guy who has this problem, but I doubt it. 
And, and Jesus says, don't take thought for tomorrow. In other words, don't be worrying about what's out there a year from now, two years, five years, ten years. Don't be worrying about whether or not in this context you can make it to this point. Just walk with me today. Finish this course today. And when you feel like in the morning I can't make it through this day, then we become a step, an hour, 15 minutes to bring it down to the reality of the moment. Can you walk with Jesus just a little bit further? And when you look back and it becomes accumulative, this has been a long time that it's been like this. Don't look that way back. Look back and say, who was I 20 years ago? What kind of person was I 20 years ago? And how has God shaped me and changed me to be this person today? Where I am now? We have a tendency to create snapshots in our minds of ourselves and snapshots in our minds of others. We look at people and we say, they have this problem. When are they ever gonna get over that problem? And we're, we're, we've got this snapshot, this Polaroid picture of them, not realizing that 20 years ago, this, this thing was really, really bad and they've come a long ways with it to this point, even though it's still bad. And God's gonna keep working a greater weight of glory in them, making them more like Jesus. And he's doing the same thing in us. You've been running the course for maybe a long time, maybe not that long. And it's painful and you suffer. Let me read from Colossians 3. If you then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remember that? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the Father. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, change your focus. Don't, get, don't make this stuff the priority. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's a lot more in this passage to consider and we'll talk about it more back when January rolls around. Until then, I want to encourage you to begin a practice of intensely focusing on Jesus and how he lived. In the midst of your race, look to Jesus. Think about the kind of person he was and is. 
You learned this morning that Jesus is gentle and lowly. Focus on that today. Focus on that tomorrow. Ask God to help you to be gentle and lowly, becoming like Christ in the midst of this race. Focusing on Jesus is not just putting a picture out there and that's Jesus and I'm going to focus on him. Focusing on Jesus is intensely concentrating on the kind of person that he is and wanting to become that yourself. Through intentional practice, intentional pursuit. Make it your practice to think about him, how he ran his race and how you may need to change in light of his example. Believe in your Father's promises and long to see Him face to face. Live in the awareness of your Father's current personal presence with you at all times. And live for God's glory and others' good. My statement for my life is serving Christ for God's glory and others' good. That's what I want to be. That's who I want to be. That's what I want my life to be about. In the power of the Holy Spirit, run your race with endurance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us strength. I thank you that the one that you have given to die for us is the one who also lives in us and with us. And I thank you that that person, Jesus, is a person who was made like his brothers in every way. That he was tempted in all ways just like us. That he endured, was not immune from or separate from the pain and suffering that we have. If anything, Father, Jesus understood the brokenness of this world in ways that we never are able to in our lives. And thus, that increased the pain as he looked around and understood what it could be. Father, help us to understand who Jesus was and who he is now. Help us to want to live this life the way he lived this life. And help us to want to become, through the pain and suffering, more like him. Help us to remember that we are not who we will be. But will help us to remember that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. God, give us strength for today. Give us grace, timely, gracious work in our lives. Help us to remember our high priest who understands our frailty. Help us to remember that we are loved and that you are always with us. In your son's name, amen.